So as, as you guys um, remember, we are continuing our, our new series called Reclaim as we walk through the first few chapters of Revelation. We started last week uh, by talking about how we're reminded that the current realities that surround us, the current things that you see every day in your life, when you wake up, you do your normal routines, you're in your house, your apartment, your dorm, wherever you may be, it just seems like that is what it is. Right? We do our cooking, we eat, we go out, we shop, we meet friends, we work, and, and everything that we see, it just seems like that is what it is. That, that's all there is to what life is. And when we try to inject spiritual practices, when we try to inject, okay, once a week I go to church, and in the mornings, I try to pray. Um, in the middle of the day or in the evenings, I try to read God's Word. It still feels that it's connected with our current reality. There's nothing more to it than simply that. That I go to church, it's a routine. I read my Bible, it's a, it's a routine. It's a discipline that I do. But that something deeper, that something more significant, that's something that draws us to make us see things differently. It seems absent. John could identify with many of us as he went through so many great experiences by following Jesus Christ. But then suddenly, as persecution began to go into all the churches and he was exiled on the island of Patmos, this resurrection of Jesus Christ, the truth of the resurrection of, the, of Jesus Christ didn't seem to be so powerful anymore. It seemed like life was what it was. And God seemed absent. God seemed like a relic of the past that had no significance or relevance in our future day. He was watching as he's praying from the island of Patmos and looking out into the mainland for the churches that are there and the reports that are that he is hearing that they're being persecuted uh, people that he knew are losing their businesses they're losing their lives they're being imprisoned they're being constantly tortured because of their faith and John is on his knees looking out towards the mainland praying for them saying God will you show up and show the power of your resurrection we thought life was going to change we thought things were going to be different. And yet every day as John prays, as months go by, and even as years go by, four years to be exact, he doesn't see any change. It just feels like the world is what it is. And us praying is just hopeful thinking. Yet he continued. Despite the emptiness, despite the voidness of God responding, he continued. And it says, as John worshiped on the Lord's day, as, as for us, it's Sunday. For him, most likely it was a Saturday. But in that space, as he's worshiping God and he's seeking God after four years of not hearing anything, we see the book of Revelation begin with, and then I turn to see the voice that spoke to me. I had an apocalyptic experience. I had 
a revelation from God. See, brothers and sisters, we too, we need a fresh vision, a fresh revelation of who Jesus Christ is in our lives. And when we have that fresh expression, that fresh revelation of Jesus in our lives, it changes everything. It unlocks our eyes and our hearts to be able to perceive how God is at work in us, how he is relevant in these normal circumstances that we see in our reality. We must never give up and give in to the status quo of what we see around us because we all know it offers nothing. So as we seek him and worship him, God does give us a fresh vision that engages our hearts. It opens our our minds. One other detail that we couldn't miss from last week's um, passage was that in the opening, it says that God, Jesus Christ, was found among the lampstands. And remember, the lampstands represented the churches of God. In other words, it means that in John's very situation, God is always present. It didn't say that Jesus was found on top of the lampstands looking down. It doesn't say that Jesus was far off, away from the lampstands, looking in. It says that Jesus was standing among the lampstands. In other words, for us, we have this hope and this guarantee of knowing that wherever we are at, as mundane as our apartment, our home, our workplace, our lives feel, Jesus is actually there. He is among us. He was with John on the island of Patmos, even when he felt alone. He is with us in our hardest moments, even when we feel like God is not present. He is with us in our difficult circumstances, even though it feels like God is not working. He is with us even when we cannot perceive him and our vision is limited. See, when the presence of Jesus is with you, and you continually seek after him, you get more than just consolation. When Jesus is with you, he doesn't just pat you on the back and say, there, 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 it's going to be okay. Jesus doesn't just offer us consolation. The presence of Jesus gives us a greater vision. The presence of Jesus presents us with a deeper reality. The presence of Jesus gives us a new wineskin. So as this intro, it closed with Jesus writing to John and saying, address this to the seven churches. To the seven churches, write this. What Jesus basically saying was, there were more than seven churches at that time. There was a lot more. But when Jesus says write to the seven churches, he wasn't just saying exclude everyone else because they're not important. The seven was a symbolic number for the Jewish people as well. It represented completeness. So we see the uh, six days of creation, but on the seventh day, God rested as creation was made complete. So what, when we see seven churches, God is including all churches. He's basically saying, every church, I want you to hear this. Because every church at some point, every gathering of the people of God at some point, we will struggle with the same things that these churches have been struggling with. So these churches were representative of all the issues that we all face in our everyday life. So today, 
we're going to turn our attention to the first church that is addressed in Revelation in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'll be reading from the NIV, and I invite you to read along. It reads this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice, the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in paradise, which is in the paradise of God. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for blessing us with your word. As we journey through it together, I pray will you open up our hearts and our minds so that we may perceive, we may see, we may understand what you are trying to tell us, Lord. I pray, Father, that every hindrance, every barrier, every blockage that might be there that keeps us apathetic, that keeps us indifferent, that keeps us stuck where we're at. Will you break that, Father, in Jesus' name? Help us to hear your voice again, Father Lord. Give us, Father Lord, a revelation. May your Spirit speak into our hearts, into our minds at this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So notice the introductory address at the very beginning. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? It's, it's, a, it's a peculiar introduction. John could have just simply said, what the Lord told me was to tell the church in Ephesus this, but he doesn't. He actually says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? And this is repeated throughout all seven churches, the address that's given to all seven churches. And although I have to confess, I don't know completely what's going on here. I don't know the full extent of why it was written this way. But from the rest of the book of Revelation, my best guess is that Jesus really is referring to a real supernatural angel that has a particular charge over that particular church. So what makes us think, and what makes me think in this way? Well, what, what we see in the rest of the book of Revelation is every time an angel is, 
is mentioned in the book of Revelation, it's not referring to some symbolic kind of thing. It's actually referring to a real supernatural being. It's consistent throughout the rest of the book of Revelation so that we have to assume that in this beginning, these letters that are written to the seven churches, when he says write to the angel, he's referring to a real supernatural being. And perhaps the reason why this was spoken to the angel was because the angel's main role that we see throughout the whole Bible is to ensure a message gets communicated to the intended target. To make sure that the message of God gets communicated to the intended target. We see this role that angels had throughout the whole scriptural witness. Um, the angel Gabriel, remember him? He was sent to make sure that Mary and Zechariah got the message about the coming birth of Jesus Christ and John the Baptist. You see, the angel Gabriel needed to make sure that the message that they received was a message that they understood was given from God and it was given correctly because they weren't just having any babies. This was the Messiah that was coming. This was John the Baptist that would prepare the way. And this significant event, it required an angel to communicate the message to Mary and to Zechariah. We also see an angel at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An angel is sent to the disciples at the tomb so that they get the message so that they don't come up with their own theories of why Jesus' body is absent. They don't think suddenly someone stole his body or they're hiding it somewhere or they're making up their own imaginative creative scenarios no they need to get the message that as Jesus told them that he would resurrect on the third day he wants them to know this is what is happening we also see a similar part an angel plays in Daniel chapter 10 in Daniel 10 Daniel is greeted by an angel who has been and this is where we get a lot more insight into the supernatural realm this angel has been fighting these demonic forces, which is called these commanders of Persia. So what we see happening is that we see everyday life that is happening around them, Pers the Persian army and all this kind of stuff, the Persian control that was over ancient, um, the ancient Near East at that time. But he calls them the commanders of Persia, meaning there are certain demonic forces that are at work that are beyond what we see as just a kingdom reality. That whoever is, whoever has political power, it has more than that. He says there are forces at work that he calls the commanders of Persia that wants to keep Daniel from hearing what he needs to hear from God. See, Daniel was a high official in the Persian government at that time and the spiritual forces that are work at that place it's so thick and it's surrounding them that we get insight that Daniel has difficulty 
hearing God, even though Daniel, he would go three times a day and pray to God every day, we see the difficulty in hearing God's voice because the spiritual forces at work is so thick, is so potent. So because this angel is having difficulty, the description that is given, it says the angel or this message of God, this revelation of God that needs to get to Daniel, it was withheld from him for 21 days. So this message is trying to get across, but for 21 days, it's not getting to him because of what's going on in this spiritual realm. And so eventually, what we're told in, in Daniel 10 is that, gay, uh, that Michael was also sent to help this angel get the message across to Daniel. So the angel Michael is sent so that Daniel hears and that message is revealed to Daniel. See, this Daniel passage reveals that there's a lot more at work in our life than just simply what there is to our everyday sight. This is why, brothers and sisters, it makes sense then when we look at John in the island of Patmos and he's praying and he's not getting this revelation of God. He's not getting this, this communion with God. For four years, he's asking for it, but there's desert-like experience. This, this Roman government that is persecuting, it, what, the insight that we get is not just simply a governmental force. It's not just simply a societal kind of culture that is, that's enshrouding everything that's going on. He's saying there's something deeply spiritual that is happening that's keeping the people of God from hearing what they need to hear. See, brothers and sisters, in our life, if we're having difficulty hearing from God, it's not just this kind of like earthly matter. It's a spiritual one. And the blessing that we hear here is that these angels that were assigned to go to speak God's word, remember, God's word wasn't addressed simply to an individual for the sake of the individual. It was addressed to the person to be addressed to the church. You know, what that tells us is we can't do this by ourselves. This is why we see the importance of a church community. And in being in that church community, God has a word for us, a collective word that helps us move together to where we need to go. And so whenever we're trying to seek God by ourselves, we're isolating ourselves from that community of message that God wants to bless each one of us with. So rather than seeking by yourself and fighting that battle by yourself, he says, always be in community because in community, it becomes easier for us to hear what we need to hear. For each one of us, we hear the part of the message that is appropriated towards us. See, the message that was given to Mary, to Zechariah, to Daniel, to the, uh, to the disciples, all of it wasn't a personal message when the angel came. It was a message that they need to hear to tell the rest of the church. In the same way today for us, we need to understand that sometimes our own kind of feeling of isolation, our own difficulty hearing from God, 
may be has to do with the spiritual forces that are at work against us. And the more we sit isolated, the more we just be independent with our own spirituality, the less chance do we have of hearing what God wants us to hear. Because the spiritual forces that are around us becomes that much more potent. The second thing that we notice about this passage is this. The greater the potential of a certain community, the greater the pushback from these spiritual forces will that community face. The greater the potential of a particular community, the greater the pushback of the spiritual forces will that community experience. After Jesus gives this introductory address. He says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, may they get this message and make sure you give it to the angel so the angel can communicate it and give it to that church. We hear Jesus saying all of these great things about the church of Ephesus. The great potential, the great work that the church of Ephesus was doing. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire at that time. It was a major financial hub and a very, very key seaport for merchandise to come through. It was also the proud home of the goddess Artemis, which is Diana for the Romans, the goddess of fertility and the embodiment of sexuality and lust. They actually made a great temple to Diana in the, uh, in the city of Ephesus, and this temple was the size of two football fields. It was huge. It was a centerpiece of that city. It was also considered at that time, this temple, one of the seven greatest wonders of that ancient, near, of that ancient world. So Paul, what he does is he comes in, he finds Priscilla and Aquila, and they begin a discipleship in that city. And two and a half years, churches are, are, are resulting in the city of Ephesus. But then Paul's kicked out of the city because the impact of his faith was having on the business people who are selling merchandise for the temple of Diana that he's kicked out. And Ephesus then becomes the home of Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, and John. And then he gives charge to Timothy to take over the church in Ephesus. See, Ephesus was one of the leading churches at that time. It had great potential. It had the greatest potential for impact over that ancient, over that ancient world. And Jesus commends what the church in Ephesus was doing. Look at what he says to all the things that are happening. Despite losing their businesses, despite losing their networking, despite being singled out, despite the persecution that they've been suffering, they had persevered. And, they, and as, as John mentioned, they have not grown weary. Jesus commends them that they don't even tolerate wicked men among them. They were committed to a life of purity and holding to right doctrine, which was so difficult to do in a lustful place like Ephesus. They never compromised on their ethics they guarded themselves against false teachers who were deceiving apostles. This really was a standout community. 
It was a standout church. But despite all of these great things that this church was doing, look at what Jesus says to the church of Ephesus. But I have this against you, he says. You have forsaken your first love. Despite all of their tremendous, impressive sacrifices, he says, you fell out of love with Jesus. No, we can question, how can you say that? Look at everything that I'm doing. Why do you think I'm enduring persecution? Why do you think that even though I lose my job, I still go to church and I still pray and I still honor you with my worship and and, in the word? But Jesus still says, but you have forsaken your first love. What about me fighting for all the truth, the, the orthodox truth, when all of these other false teachers and false people are coming with their new ideas that are not gospel-centric, Jesus says, but still you have forsaken your first love. But I'm always going on mission trips, and I'm always going to different places to spread your gospel and to let people know what this word really is about. Yes, thank you for your attentiveness. Thank you for your tenderness and all this kind of stuff, but you have forsaken your first love. See, the second point that we see that John drawing out of this message that was supposed to be given to the angel of the church of Ephesus is you can't forget about love. In everything that we do in our, in our relationship with Christ, we cannot forget about love. You know, we often hear in Hollywood scenarios with all the Hollywood hot couples that are out there, we hear people falling out of love so many times. Oh, they fell out of love. Oh, love is not part of their thing anymore. And they go looking for it in another person. And then even there, they fall out of love and they find it in a different person. And they, and they keep going and we see this endless cycle of people falling out of love. You see, love, it really is a feeling, right? But the thing is, love doesn't just remain a feeling. There's so much more to love than just the emotions, See, love also involves a willfulness towards the other. So in other words, emotionally, you can fall out of love, but willfully, you cannot stop trying. Does that make sense? Emotionally, you can fall out of love, but willfully, you cannot stop trying. Because once you stop trying, love disappears completely. We see that in marriages all the time, where people feel like, yeah, I fell out of love with my, with my spouse. Well, are you still trying? Because if you're not trying, of course, you're not going to sense anything. You're not going to rekindle anything. A lot of times when we stop trying, we, we decide to follow other, some, idol, some other idol. And that's what we see these Hollywood couples do. They're saying, let me find it somewhere else. But that thing that they try to look for some, somewhere else, it's elusive. And they don't experience love there either. See, brothers and sisters, love has to involve a willful dedication as well. Because as soon as you stop that, you cannot rekindle love in that life. This is why we see in John 
He never stops pursuing Jesus Christ in his daily life. Despite the fog of this thick spiritual force that's hovering over his life, hovering over all the churches, and devoiding each one from any feeling of closeness with God for over four years, John's willful response is to continue to seek after Jesus. Do you guys remember Mary and Martha? We see the Mary-Martha complex here. We see this, what we call the Ephesian syndrome. The Ephesian syndrome is this, is that the idol that the Ephesians had was they took greater pride in their effort. They took greater pride in their responsibilities. Hey, we're carrying out our responsibilities, right? And they're just busy with that. And that's the same thing with Martha. Martha was busy with it. So they, they were in the vicinity, in the space with Jesus, but not engaged with him. And remember with Mary and Martha, when Martha is in the kitchen doing all of this stuff for Jesus, right? She gets upset because Mar Mary is sitting at his feet in this devotional posture. For some of us, that's how we view church. We come to church and we say, see, I love you because I'm coming to church, Jesus. So you have nothing to say to me. But if Jesus says you have forsaken your first love, sometimes the reason why is because we are pursuing more that responsibility. And we're not pursuing a devotional relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a difference. He doesn't just want us to show up at church. He wants us to love him, to seek him. And I wonder sometimes what that could look like. And I know that it's unfair to say this, but, you know, on, when we're online, it's so easy to disengage with worship. It's so easy to disengage with, you know, Lord, you are sovereign, you are awesome. Why? Because the emotional effect of being in a crowd the emotional effect of having the best instrumentalists and best musicians there, it like takes away that emotional part of us engaging in worship. And so for us, we just listen to it. And we're like, yeah, yeah. And in our back of our minds, we're saying, I'm doing my part. We have that Martha syndrome. I'm doing my part. I showed up. So that should be good enough. And Jesus says, but that's not how love operates. In a spousal relationship, you don't just do stuff for your spouse because that's your responsibility. As my wife would say to me, I can't feel your love. And then as I would respond to her, what do you mean? <laughs> like, I'm doing all of this work and I'm doing this for you and I'm doing all of this for you. What do you mean you don't feel my love? Because there's something more. There's this desire from the other saying, but do you love me? Or are you just being responsible? And sometimes, that's what our relationship with God can become. We're just responsible. And we do it because that's what we have to do. But we lost our love. So what should we do about it then? How do we change that? Well, Jesus says three things. He says, first, remember 
in the passage. He says, remember your first love. In other words, we have to first recognize our condition, that we have already fallen out of love, our first love, and we need to confess it. He goes, remember what that was like. Right? That's what you, we need to reclaim. He then says, repent. The word means to turn around, to stop the habits, to stop the certain postures that we are doing that's maintaining that kind of life. Where when Jesus says to Martha, 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 you are worried about many things, but only one thing is necessary. In other words, he's saying to Martha, you have all of these other stuff that are in your head that you have to do and you're responsible for. But he says, but there's only one thing that is really necessary. He goes, just come at my feet and love me. He says, that's the greater thing. Now, for a lot of us, we need to repent of our own goodness, of our own effort, which sounds so weird. We need to repent of that. And instead, what we need to go in into is being devoted to Jesus. Loving him in our life. Wanting to pursue him. Believing who he says he is. And then the last thing that we need to do is redo. Go back to the things that we did at first. That allowed us to fall in love with Jesus. You know, when I was uh, 17, uh, this is my first fruits of my first relationship with God as I'm pursuing. I, I remember I couldn't get enough of the Word of God. Right after school, I would rush home, I'd open up my Bible, and I'd read as much as I can. I didn't understand all of it, but I just wanted to be with Jesus. And so I would read it. I, I wouldn't understand. I was like, I don't understand this stuff. I don't get what's going on. Just the same way when I married my wife and she's a woman and some womanly stuff, I don't understand. And so when I see her, but at that time when I first married, I want to be with her. And so I'm just trying to figure things out. Same thing in our relationship with Jesus. We try to figure things out. We just want to be with him. We worship him. We want to sing songs rather than choosing. I want to listen to... I don't know who's popular these days, BTS. <laughs> Are you guys young enough to listen to BTS? Instead of listening to that and saying, yeah, that excites me. Like, how many of us saying, I want worship? I know it sounds awkward, right? I want to worship right now. How many of you ever said, I want to pray right now? It says, return, redo, reclaim these things that you did at first. But here's the warning. At the end of it, this passage, what he says is this, which, is, which seems like a very harsh warning. He says, if you don't, if you don't reclaim, he says, your lampstand will be removed from its place. That's a scary thought. Jesus seems to be saying that in the spiritual reality, in the spiritual realm, 
does a representation of every church in that space. But when a church, when a community loses sight of our love for Jesus and it just becomes action-oriented, it just becomes polity-driven, it just becomes responsibility, it just becomes about ourselves, he says, your lampstand is removed from its place because you no longer seek after him. You know, that's such a scary thought for me. Because what that means is that, you know, some churches today, they simply just exist. But there's no spiritual connection with Jesus. See, without our first love service, our worship service that we have together, it's a lifeless routine. That's why we don't really engage with it. You see, without our first love, endurance becomes joyless. There's no point of persevering anymore. So we just give up and we just resign to the status quo. Without our first love, orthodoxy, right theology becomes narrow-minded and it becomes nitpicky legalism. And without first love, Hatred of wrong practices that we do becomes hatred of people who practice those things. Yet, this is what Jesus says. To those who overcome, Jesus promises access to the tree of life. Jesus says, I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. Brothers and sisters, isn't this why we want to seek Jesus? Isn't this why we gather as a church? Not for some joyless, empty routine. Not for just morality and to keep us on a narrow path. But isn't it to receive life and enjoy it to the full? Jesus says, the seeds of that come from reclaiming our first love. And I want to invite you, brothers and sisters, to think about your own hearts. How can you reclaim your first love with Jesus? How can you seek after him again and rekindle that joy? Because as you keep seeking after him, I guarantee you this, the revelation of Jesus Christ that fresh vision that each one of us need, it will get to you. Yes, there's a storm of these strongholds of indifference, strongholds of apathy, strongholds of cultural influence that are keeping that message of the angel of our church from getting to us. But you keep seeking after him, that message will come to you. It will get to you. This is why, brothers and sisters, Jesus gave us this hope and this guarantee. And before he gave his life for us, 
Jesus gathered his disciples together and he took the bread and he said, this is my body, which has been broken for you. It says, take, eat, and remember me. In other words, Jesus was reminding his people, saying, you're not by yourself. That no matter how dark the situation gets, no matter how far you feel from me, my body will be broken for you. So that you might have always this access to the Father. That you may have access to the angel's message that he has for us. So brothers and sisters, I want to lead us in prayer before we take the bread together. And I want us to use this space to repent. Say, Father, forgive me for losing my first love. Father, forgive me for making church about other things or making my pursuit about you about other things. Help me to repent of that line of thinking and to claim you again, to reclaim my first love. Let's pray together. So Jesus welcomes us to his table and to each one of us. He says, here is my body that has been broken for you. Take, eat, and remember me. Brothers and sisters, let's take the bread together. In the same way, Jesus took the cup of the covenant and he said, this is my blood which has been poured out for you. Take, drink, and remember me. So at this time, let's take it together. And as we do, let's remember that as it comes into us, that Jesus wants to bless us. Let's take it together. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much that you love us, you pursue us, and you want us, Father, to experience life and life to the full. May your revelation your apocalypse, come to us quickly, Lord. May you break every spiritual hindrance, every stronghold that keeps your message from coming to us. And when it does, may we continually pursue you, Lord, to love you, to give our devotional hearts to you. Thank you, Father. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you both now and forever. Amen.